Well, it is said by some that the book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible. And in a certain sense, well, actually, truly, we don't know exactly when it was written down. Um, we do know that Job uh, probably lived before Moses, because there's no mention in the book of Job at all about anything mosaic, about the law, about uh, any old covenant, or about Jerusalem, or any kind of uh, uh, tabernacle. There's no mention of any of those things. So we assume that Job was written before Moses, or at least the events are clearly before Moses. And most people, I think most conservative scholars, uh, Dr. John Whitcomb places it between um, he's now with the Lord, but he placed it between, uh, and I agree with them, he placed it between the flood and Abraham. And uh, so the events of Job, the time that he lived, was probably before Abraham, probably before the patriarchs. There's a lot of evidence to that degree or to that effect in the book, but we won't uh, go through that. So it is an old book and in many ways a unique book from a literature perspective. It's a beautiful book. Some people have called it the Shakespeare of the Old Tim Job, the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. Um, a very, from a from the standpoint of the Hebrew in it, uh, an amazing amount of diversity in the vocabulary and the the way in which it is written. It's beautifully written, but it's also unique in regard to its form. In fact, uh, as scholars talk about how to classify it, they don't know how to classify it because it's unique. It's unique not just in the Bible, it's unique outside the Bible in literature. Uh, it begins with prose, and then the, the center of it from chapter 3 through the beginning of chapter uh, 42 is all poetry, and then the end is prose again. And the, the whole format of this argumentation between the friends back and forth with Job, it's very unique. It's unique to all of literature. It's an amazing book and a beautiful book. And in many ways, I would say it's foundational to the Word of God because of its age and because um, it deals with the most basic, the most basic issue of the relationship between God and men. Uh, some people say that the theme of the book of Job is suffering in the sovereignty of God. And although um, that is certainly a major theme in the book, I would argue that the theme is broader than that. And I would say that the theme of the book of Job fundamentally is this. It is the fear of God. The fear of God is the most basic thing, the most basic response of man to God that is required of him. In all of life, in every situation, in, all, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, in good and bad, wherever we are, there's one thing that is required of us, above all else, it is to fear the true and the living God. And this is the beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of any relationship with God. This is what humility is. This is what faith is. It all begins with the fear of God. And this truly is, I would argue, the the theme of the book. In fact, chapter 28, uh, an amazing statement of wisdom being beginning with the fear of God. Kind of summarizes the book. It begins with 
Job in a statement of the fact that he does fear the Lord and that he eschews evil or turns away from evil, that he was a righteous man who actually did fear God. But at the end of the book, he had to learn to fear God. And so often our walk with Christ is like that. We may believe, we may have faith, we may have fear, and yet God knows that we need more of that. And that's kind of where Job found himself. He feared the Lord, but he needed to learn to fear the Lord. And that is kind of the, I would argue, the main point of the book. I read here at the beginning of chapter 32, the introduction of Elihu. And I want to briefly, this is all kind of introductory, but I want to briefly review the book to the point of chapter 32. So I think the the general gist of the story of Job or the account of Job is fairly well known. I don't know how much detail I need to give. But as I mentioned, it begins with a statement that God himself said of Job. He is a righteous man, which did not mean that he was perfect and sinless. I always like to point out that righteous in the Bible, the righteous are those who are righteous by grace through faith. That is true from Genesis to Revelation. They are righteous by grace through faith, meaning they are justified by grace and they're born again. They have a new heart. They do love God. They walk with God. Job, that was Job. Job was born again. He was justified by faith. And he walked in the truth. And he was a faithful man of God. He was a righteous man. He wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect. But he was a righteous man. And actually, Satan appears before God. And interestingly enough, it's not Satan that points Job out. It's God that points Job out. So have you noticed Job? What a righteous man he is. He fears the Lord. And Satan accuses Job. And, you know, Satan is the great accuser of the brethren, even today. And what he accused Job of this, or what he basically accused Job of, was being a time server. In other words, he basically accused Job of not really loving God, but that really, he knew that, you know, he knew where his bread was buttered. He knew that uh, all his blessings came from God, and so he served God. And Job, uh, Satan basically said to God, if you take all those things away, if you take all those blessings away, he'll curse you. And this was a test. Um, It was a test to show the genuineness of Job's faith in God. That it wasn't based on him getting blessings, but that he really did believe God, trust God, fear God, and love God. And we know how it started out. If you go back to chapter 1, briefly, verse 20 through 22, this was his initial response when Satan took away, now think about this, Satan took away all of his wealth, and all of his children in one day. Now put yourself in that position for a minute. Imagine if you just woke up one day and found out you were penniless. And all, everything, you were, you know, everything you had was gone, and all your children just died one day. That was pretty astounding. Notice what it says of Job. Again, famously. Verse 20. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked 
I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, an amazing statement, in all this did not did Job not sin or charge God with wrong? And I want to say that that's exactly what the fear of the Lord, how the fear of the Lord responds to trials. Right there. And we say Job had the perfect response at this point, right? In chapter 2, verse 10, after, now, not just has he lost all his children, not only has he just lost all his wealth, but now, the second time around, right? We don't know what the time frame was between these two, but Satan then brought a disease upon him. Boils that covered him from head to foot that were painful. Now think about that for a minute. Okay, you just lost everything. You've lost all your children. And now you're in continual physical pain. Your whole body. Now, this is in the days before they had painkillers. I doubt they even had whiskey. I don't know, maybe. They... <laughs> but, well, I mean, you, I mean, you had to endure it. Right? There was no emergency room. Job was so bad that when his friends came, probably several months later, they didn't even recognize him. And his wife says, curse God and die. And I was thought, I don't know if she was, I don't know what her state was, but that's the only word we have of her in the whole book. But be careful what you say. You never know what gets recorded. And that's the only thing we know of her. You know, it's like, I don't know if she was a true believer or not, if she repented, but I mean, that's, that's all we know about her. Curse God and die. That was her advice. And I love what he says in verse 10, but this is chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Well, that's pretty profound that Job actually responded in such a godly way when he lost everything and he was actually in physical pain. I don't think anybody, apart from Christ, I may be wrong, but I don't think anybody has suffered quite like Job. Um, you know, we think of maybe Jeremiah or you know, some of the prophets, but truly, um, Job suffered, but he responded here in such a godly way. And then, as you know, his friends show up. Three friends. We don't know anything about them. They were not from his immediate area. They were from another area, and they came together, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Uh, again, this was probably months, I'm guessing. So they actually knew about it and made arrangements and came. They came probably months later. Now, Job has been in the state for some time now. You know, he's lost all of his friends. He's by himself. He's He becomes, as it says later, a, a, a song of fools. And Job is... In all this suffering, his friends come and they sit with him for seven days and say nothing. That was the best thing they did. And then Job spoke first. Job chapter 3, and he basically cursed his day. And then his three friends proceed over the next few chapters. They go one by one. And they proceed to basically accuse Job of being with it. And they start out kind of innocuously. And as it goes, one after the other, and they go, it's three rounds, basically. They go one at a time. And basically what they say to Job, Job, this came upon you because you're a wicked man. They said, Job, you're wicked, you're a hypocrite, 
So the, the wicked never prosper, the evil never prosper. And they said, if you really, the key here is, Job, you need to repent of your wickedness and you need to go to the Lord and ask forgiveness and He'll bless you. And they were almost health, wealth, prosperity type people, really, is what they were saying. And uh, basically, this is, uh, it got so bad, I mean, it goes to the end of the last things they say, they are actually accusing Job of very specific things. They say, Job, you have not, you have, you have abused the widow, you have abused the fatherless, you haven't taken care of the hungry. And they accuse him of very specific things, of which he was not guilty. And I would argue that these three friends were the greatest part of his test. And they truly were the greatest instruments of Satan. I don't know whether these men were believers or not. At the end, they do repent, but they really were instruments of Satan. And this, this was truly the apex of his test. It was not just that he had lost all these things. It was not just that he had physical suffering and all of this at once. It was that his three friends actually vehemently and dogmatically accused him of being wicked. And that was the reason they came upon him. And what you have in the first half of the book of Job is Job answering his friends. And at the same time, he kind of goes back and forth between answering his friends and crying out to God. Why are you doing this? Why are you against me? Why are you opposed to me? And he uses the most graphic metaphors of God being his enemy and setting him up like a target and shooting at him like target practice and this is how he feels. He's like he's overwhelmed. God is forsaken. God is his enemy. Why? And his friends keep accusing him. And he keeps defending himself. He cries out for a mediator. And you know all this amazing response. Job, finally, chapter 26, he answers Bildad. And they stop. The friends are done they're done answering Job or trying to answer Job. And Job goes off on a soliloquy that lasts to chapter 31 and uh, kind of speaks about, he actually describes his life before the trial and then he describes his life after the trial and then he actually uh, he confirms almost as if he's in a court of law. I am innocent. And he's wanting to stand before God and defend himself before God. That's how he is presented himself. And that's where Elihu comes. And this is the beginning. This is what I read in chapter 32. This is the introduction to Elihu. And uh, Elihu's interesting because this is the first time we even know he's there. We've gone through all these chapters. These guys are going back and forth. All we know of is three friends. And then all of a sudden, they all stop, and Elihu speaks. Who's Elihu? Where did he come from? But he was there, apparently, the whole time. He was listening the whole time, and he was quiet the whole time, and we, all of a sudden, he's here. And the first thing you notice when you read these first five verses, which I read, the most obvious thing uh, that you see, the thing that's repeated four times, is that Elihu burned with anger. Uh, I would say a righteous anger. He was very angry. He was angry, first of all, because of Job. Uh, <clears throat> he was also angry because of his friends. If you look at chapter 32, 
He says, uh, he burned with anger, verse 2, uh, because he justified himself rather than God. And then in verse 3, he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer. And so Elihu's sitting here listening to this back and forth, and he's saying, listen, neither of you guys, nobody gets it. Nobody understands it. And interestingly enough, Elihu kind of presents himself as what Job was looking for. That is a mediator, someone who would be between God and him. And he presents himself as that person. Job, I'm that man, and I'm going to be in God's stead to you. And he presents himself in this way. In fact, he presents himself really as being, I would say, almost a prophet. That what he's saying is inspired. In fact, the words that he uses to describe his own speech, as he introduces himself several times, is very similar to the words that Solomon used to describe the inspiration of his own book in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Very similar to the language. Very similar to the language of Jeremiah the prophet, who burned inwardly uh, with the message and couldn't hold it back. And Job said, or uh, Jeremiah said, you know, I, I said, I'm not going to say thing, anything anymore. And he said, fire burned within him, right? He, he had to speak. And that's kind of how Elihu speaks. He, he speaks like a prophet. And he gives these four speeches in chapters 32 through 37. Now, Elihu is kind of a, um, how shall I say, controversial. As you read the commentaries, there are some people that hate him and some people that love him. And there are some people that say, this guy's just an arrogant, young, you know, fool, and he's just saying basically what the others have said, and God doesn't even bother to deal with him. That's kind of how some people look at it. And when I say some people, I mean evangelical scholars. I'm not saying, you know, liberals or anything. Then there are other people that say, no, this is, this is actually, what Elihu's saying is absolutely true, and this is actually, he is from the Lord. Now, that's how I fall. As, as I studied the book, this became clear to me. In fact, this was the most important change in my mind in regard to the whole book is understanding Elihu. And I really believe Elihu is speaking for the Lord. And I say that for several reasons. One of which is God himself, who follows Elihu, says pretty much the same thing. Elihu anticipates what God is going to say. And not to get ahead of myself, Elihu prepared Job to receive what God was going to say. He really was like a mediator. He was like an interpreter. That's the word he uses. He's like an interpreter of God to Job. Now, that's a long introduction to say this, that Elihu pointed to Job's sin. And this is very important to understand. Elihu's accusation of Job was completely different than the accusation of uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They are two totally different things. What his three friends said was, Job, you are wicked, and God is judging you. And that's why all this came upon you. It was like lightning struck. You know, sometimes we joke and say, you know, someone, some atheist cursing God, we say, well, you know, we move away because we think God's going to strike. Yeah. And we're waiting for that lightning to strike. And that's kind of what they said happened to Job. Job, you know, you were prosperous for a while, but you know what? God caught up to you and he judged you. That's what they were basically saying. And Job was saying, no, I know this didn't come upon me because I'm wicked. I know I walk with God. I know I've obeyed. I know I've walked in his way. He says that repeatedly. And it was true. God himself said it. But what Elihu said was, 
Job, the problem is not, he was not saying to Job, you have sinned and therefore God is judging you. What Elihu was saying was, Job, you have not responded to this in a godly way. You have sinned, and he summarizes it here, and this is why I read this passage. He summarizes it in verse 2, when he says of Job, at the end of verse 2, he says, he justified himself rather than God. Now, the reason I read this in the ESV is because I think it accurately says rather than God. Some of the translations say before God. And I don't think that's the right idea. I think it is the idea that Job justified himself rather than God. Now, let me just stop and say that I think that's a summary of Elihu's counsel, which I want to develop. That's going to be my outline. I know this is all introduction. But anyway, uh, but all that to say, uh, I, want to, I want to be clear what Elihu means. Now, when, when we hear the word justify, as well-taught New Testament Christians, we hear, and, and rightly so, I mean, this is important, right? We hear justification by faith. And when we say justify, and I hope you can find that word, because it often is a confusion in, in, uh, in theology, and it's one of the major, major differences between Catholicism and biblical Christianity, is how you define that little word justify. The word justify means to declare righteousness. It does not mean, this is very, very important, it does not mean to make righteous. When we're justified by God, by faith, we are declared to be innocent, declared to be righteous. It's really beyond innocent. We are declared to be righteous on the basis of faith in the finished work of Christ. It is not God makes us righteous. Now, he does make us righteous, but that's called what? Sanctification, right? Justification is to declare righteous. Now, you say, what does it mean to declare God righteous? Justify God. Elihu is saying he should have justified God. Declared God righteous. Not make God righteous. God is righteous. But to declare him righteous. But instead of declaring God righteous, if I can put it this way, defending God. Not that God needs a defense, obviously. Instead, he declared himself righteous. He justified himself. He defended himself. He justified himself rather than justifying God. And I want to suggest to you that this was Job's basic sin. This is what he repented of at the end. And I want to suggest to you that this is exactly what everyone who faces trials is tempted to do. And if I could say it this way, it's especially the temptation of the righteous. In the midst of trials, it is to declare yourself righteous rather than God. And uh, I sometimes say, as a pastor, as a preacher, my great purpose in preaching, in many respects, is just that. It is to justify God. Let, let every man be a liar. God's word is true, and God is true, and God is perfect. And uh, it is for us not to question God, but to fear God. And that's the main message. Now, let me just 
break this down. This is my outline. All right. Job's sin. Job's sin fundamentally is he justified himself rather than God. He declared himself righteous rather than declaring God righteous. And I would say there are three things. There's a lot more you could say here because Elihu says a lot. But I want to give you three things that kind of are a reflection of this truth. In other words, all these together kind of work out to he justified himself rather than God. And I'm just going to give them to you one at a time. Now, there's three of them. The first one is this. He contended with God. He contended with God. Look at chapter 33, verse 8 through 13. He says, surely, now he's going to quote Job here for the first, like down to verse 11. He's quoting Job. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Notice, again, he's setting himself up against God. In verse 12, then, this is Elihu's response to Job's words. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you. For God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him? Saying he will answer none of man's word. Elihu's response to Job is saying, why do you contend with him? Because God is greater than man. And the answer to this really is, don't contend with God. But again, you must begin with this understanding of God's greatness. Um, I like the word transcendence. We talked about God's transcendence. God is infinitely, immeasurably above us. We are very often guilty of those people that the psalmist in Psalm 50 addressed of thinking that God is just like us. We have this tendency, we do, it's natural to us because we're foolish and we're slow to understand and we really are ignorant. We have this tendency to think that God is just like an advanced human being. He's just a little smarter than we are. He's just a little brighter than we are. He's just, you know, a little more powerful than we are. And I think this comes from a really a lack of reflection on the attributes of God. Oh, we can all name the attributes. But if we actually start to stop and think about what it means that God is omniscient, it's just an example. His knowledge is not like our knowledge. I don't know about you, but A... I don't know much to begin with. But B, I can't remember what I already learned. I always say, if I can remember 5% of what I've read over the years, I'd be the smartest guy in the world. I don't remember a tenth, I don't remember a fifth of what I've read. Or where I've been. I can't. But you understand, God, He doesn't have to recall anything. He knows everything 
about everything in the history of the universe all at once. And has it perfectly corresponding. He knows how everything works together. I would say he knows the exact number of chipmunks in Bay Village. And he knows their genealogy all the way back to creation. You say, well, that's... But you can't even begin to fathom God's omniscience. And you do that, you look at every one of his attributes. And you say, listen, God is not like us. He is infinitely above us. And when he condescends to speak to us through his word, it's like he's talking to a little baby. We're idiots. Who are we to contend against God? Now you says, why do you do this? Why do you contend against it? Interestingly enough, Job himself said something similar back in chapter 9, verse 4. He said, who has hardened himself against him and prospered? And the answer is nobody. Nobody has ever hardened himself. Nobody has set himself up against God and contended with God and won. No one has ever taken God to court or could. And if he could, he'd never win. Don't contend with God. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Period. And I would say, when you look at the rebellion of mankind against God, is it the most foaming at the mouth stupidity that you can imagine in the history of the universe? And yet people do it. And yet, indeed, some of the most quote-unquote intelligent people in the world, most of them, hate God. They contend against God. They're idiots. God is infinitely above us. As it says in Isaiah 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are your thoughts. That's pretty far. The last I checked, it's probably different now. They said the the heavens that we can see are 14.9 billion light years. I think is the number that comes to my head. Like I said, I don't have perfect memory, but yeah. 14.9 billion light years. You know how far light travels a second? And then a year? And multiply that by 14.9 billion times? That's how far, supposedly, we have seen into the universe and we still don't see the end. There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the world. You can't even comprehend that? Listen. That's how high God is above us. It's all meant to be a picture, an illustration. Do not contend against God. God is not, this is, this is creature 101. God is not subject my judgment. Period. Ever. In anything. That's 101 Christianity. What happens in trials is people contend with God. Don't be a fool. 
Don't be an idiot. Don't contend with God. Rather, and this is a beautiful thing, right? Rather, find Him as your refuge. Because He is a refuge. Now there's an irony here, because Job did, you know, Job, it wasn't like Job was a total atheist. He wasn't. He never lost his faith. It wasn't that Job was an unbeliever. But Job had to be taught. And oftentimes this is the purpose of God, is to teach us that. We're not in charge. God is. In God's purpose. He contended with God. And uh, secondly, we observe that Job questioned God's character. Look at chapter 34, verses 5 through 12. And again, he begins this section by quoting Job. It says, uh, verse 5, For Job has said, I am in the right. God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. In other words, he was basically saying, God here got it wrong. God's, God's doing something here that isn't just. I don't deserve this. What man is like Job, this is what uh, Elihu says then in verse 7, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Now here's Elihu's advice in verses 10 through 12. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. And from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Job, in his trial and in his suffering, was tempted to trust or tempted to doubt God's character. Was God really good? Was he really just in my case? This isn't fair. This isn't right. And Elihu reminds him, God is perfect in justice. God has never done one thing in the universe that is unjust. And he never will. Because he's perfect. There is no darkness in God. Now you might say there's things we don't understand. Why does God do this? Why does God allow... We don't know. But God is just. He is perfect in all His ways. I do think it helps us understand this when we realize what we deserve before God. Each and every one of us. I always like to say, whatever trials we have in this life, however bad we have it in this life, and to be honest with you, this has always been a mystery to me, why some people, some good people, I say good people, I mean good people relatively, right, uh, seem to suffer all their life. And some people who are wicked, especially, seem to have it easy. This has been the psalmist, right? Why is that? I don't know why that is. But you know what? No matter what we suffer in this life, no matter how bad we have it in this life, 
it's nothing compared to what we deserve. Nothing. When you think about hell and the nature of hell, that's what we deserve. So we have suffering in this life. What is that in comparison? So much of this is perspective. God will never lay on a man. He says this later on. God will never lay on a man what is more than right. No one will ever be able to stand before God at the end of the day and say, God, you dealt unfairly with me. You were not just with me. You know what they will have to admit when they actually look at the truth? They will have to say, God, you were so incredibly long-suffering toward me. You were so patient toward me. You were so gracious. You gave me so many things I didn't deserve. And you gave me so much. You held back in so much what I did deserve. That's what you will say when you actually see the truth. It's all perspective. I have a friend, whenever I see him, I love this. Whenever I see him, I say, how are you doing? He's a believer. He's well better than I deserve. And I say, you know what? That's good theology. I don't care how bad your day is. It's better than you deserve. So much is perspective. We're, we're taught in this world, especially in America, you know, we're just told constantly how much we deserve the best, we deserve this, we deserve that, we're wonderful. And I will tell you, it's one of the greatest lies of Satan. You don't deserve anything good. You don't deserve your good health if you have it. You don't deserve to have a good job and make good money. You don't deserve to have a house. You don't have to Listen, the Lord could take all that away from you today, and you know what? It wouldn't be unjust of it. Because it's all from Him. You say, well, I'm smart. Who gave you that? It's all from Him. It's a matter of His grace. God is infinitely good. But He's perfect in justice. And He will never do anything that is unjust. Rather than question God's character, we ought to, in fact, confirm it. Again, I think of Deuteronomy 32. Uh, There's so many statements like this in the Bible regarding God's character. And uh, we, we need to stand on these things, regardless of what happens to us. Regardless of what trials may come, you know, it's easy for us to look and say, well, why does it happen to me and not to them? And why did I have it so hard? Listen, that's just pride. That's just self-centeredness. That's just arrogance. That's just unbelief. What you need to do is you need to look to the character of God. And Job, or Deuteronomy 32, in the Song of Moses, Moses wrote this, the rock. That's God. The rock. I love that. The rock. Rock, immovable, unchanging, immutable, perfect, faithful, all eternity. Never changes. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways of justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Or as First John says, uh, it says in Justin, right to see, right? He's just, he's perfect in all his ways. Or as, uh, as uh, John says in First John, God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. Period. There's no evil in God. There's no perverseness in God. There is no injustice in God. And Job, instead of questioning God's character in his trial, should have rather clung to it and sought his goodness. 
Again, all this time, Job is a believer. He loves God. We're not saying that Job was lost and born again at the end. No, he was born again at the beginning. But listen, as believers, do we need to learn these things more and more as we go through life? We do. We need to learn that God is God, and we're not. We know that intellectually. We know that, but it's oftentimes through these kinds of things that we actually come to understand it. And God is perfect. And we, faith declares that. Well, there's one last thing that I would point out in regard to his response in justifying himself rather than God. And maybe this is the most important for us, I think. And that is this. He did not humble himself before God. So he contended with God. He questions God's character. And then lastly, he did not humble himself before God. Look at chapter 34, verse 31 and 32. Now, I believe what uh, Elihu is saying here, he's pointing to Job, and I think what he's saying here is, uh, this is what you should have done and you didn't do. As you um, as you go through the book of Job up to this point, uh, Job says a lot of good things theologically. He confirms a lot of things that we would confirm theologically. He had great theology. He uh, He wrestled with God. We find him declaring himself righteous and without fault. He uh, he says, you know, even in that place where he says, uh, uh, though he slay me, I will trust him, which is an amazing statement of faith. But you know what he says right after that? In the same verse, the end of the second half of the verse, we don't remember, but he says, but I will maintain my old ways before him. And what he's saying is that I will, I will cling to God to the very end, but I will also cling to the fact that I'm righteous. Job came to some really borderline statements that were we never find him until the end humbling himself in the way that Elihu tells him to do here in verse uh, again chapter 34 verse 31 he says this for has anyone said to God and now I would suggest you this is what he was telling Job he should have done I have borne punishment I will not offend anyone Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no That's humility and trust. When God brings difficult things into our lives, when he brings hard things, sorrow, pain, trouble, difficulty, whatever it is, there are many, many forms of it. When he brings those things into our lives, our response should be, God, this isn't fair. How could you do this to me? Our response should be, Lord, teach me. What do you want me to learn from this? Is there sin in me? Is there something that you're trying to show me? Our response should not be to contend against God and set ourselves up against God and question God and become bitter against God, which a lot of people do. Even Christians can be guilty of that to some degree, right? Our response should be, Lord, have mercy upon me and teach me. And if you're trying, if, if there's something in my life that you hate and you're trying to show me, show me. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. 
try me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is the humble reply in every trial. It is not setting oneself up against God. It is calling upon the Lord and saying, teach me. And listen, will the Lord teach us? The Lord is so ready to teach the one that simply will humble themselves before him and say, Lord, teach me. Show me what you want me to learn. What do you want me to turn away from? I don't know about you, but I'm convi- I'm, I see this all the time. I'm an idiot. It's true. I know this is true of myself. I know it's true of you, whether you acknowledge it or not. If left to yourself, you will go astray. And sin is so blinding. It's amazing how stupid sin makes you. People are, we're all a bunch of idiots that desperately need the grace of God. So don't set yourself up against Him, but humble yourself before Him and say, Lord, in Your mercy, teach me. Be patient towards me and change me and make me like Christ because I can't make myself and he does it so often through trials. Listen, if you're left to yourself and everything goes well and everything goes according to plan and you don't have any problems and you become wealthy and you become self-made and you're Mr. Macho and everybody loves you and you're wonderful, I will tell you, you'll be the most arrogant fool in the world. You'll be so self-confident. You'll be so cocky. You'll think you're, you're the greatest thing. You're an idiot. It's by God's grace that he brings things into our lives that shows us, you know, I really desperately need the grace of God. <laughs> it's a little bit like, uh, you know, the Lake Erie up here. I used to live in Bay Village, and Bay Village is right on the lake. And you could go out to the lake, and on a clear day, you know, you have about three or four weeks of just sunshine, still weather. You look out there, you say, wow, that lake looks really clear. That's beautiful. You could actually swim in it. I never really liked to swim in it because I never knew what was in it, but... But if you go after there's a big storm, you know, and you get a lot of wind, it looks like chocolate milk. It's like, I'm not getting in that. Listen, that's what, that's what trials do to us. You could, you know, things go really well, and you think you're really, you, you got this thing down. It's amazing how quickly a trial brings up things in your heart that you never knew were there. Pride, self-pity, Arrogance, bitterness, unforgiveness, self-defense, covetousness, lust. It's amazing how quickly things come up when trials come. Those things are meant to call us to purify us. And it causes us to call upon the Lord and find Him as our refuge. Job didn't do that. And that's why Elihu calls him out and says, you have justified yourself rather than God. Well, as you come to the end of Elihu's speeches, you look at chapters 37. he has four speeches, technically. And the reason we say that is because each one he kind of introduces, reintroduces his words and calls him to listen. He does this four times. Four speeches. The, end, the, last, the very last 
words he gives in chapter 37, verse 23 and verse 24. He says, the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. He is transcendent. He is infinitely above us. He is perfect in justice and righteousness. And you know what? You can't find him out. The only way you can know God, truly, is if he reveals himself to you. And the only person, this is everywhere in Scripture, the only person he will ever reveal himself to is the humble. The arrogant will never, ever God says in Proverbs 3, he scoffs at the scoffer. <laughs> Certainly, the scoffers don't collect to God. You kind of think it's humorous, these people, to say, well, there is no God. Well, there's such an arrogance. As if they're like all-knowing. As if they've been through the whole universe and lived here all their, all their you know, for billions of years. It's amazing how arrogant man Become. But listen, when you humble yourself before him, God will always teach you. Always. Well, Job, what's interesting here as you come to this, uh, as you go through the book, and you know, first Eliphaz speaks, then Job speaks, and then Bildad speaks, and then Job speaks, and then Zophar speaks, and then Job speaks. It goes, it goes through that, like the whole first half of the book. And every time one of Job's friends speaks, Job has a response. And finally they give up. Okay, we're done answering Job. But when Elihu speaks, Job doesn't speak. He's answered. Uh, now God speaks. And it's amazing, I don't have time to show you this, but it's amazing how Elihu really, especially in chapter 37, kind of sets the stage for God to speak. Uh, Elihu speaks in chapter 37 of God uh, speaking out of the storm and being over the storm. And he kind of develops this almost climactically at the end. He speaks of this storm and then it says God spoke out of the storm. It's like you can almost see the storm cloud rising and then God coming and speaking. It's like Elihu has prepared the way for Job to hear God speak. And what God does in chapter 38 through 41, which I don't have time to talk about too much, but I'll just say this. God never answers Job's complaints. God never explains what happened or why it happened. He never submits himself to God or to Job's judgment. In fact, immediately in chapter 38, he turns it around and says, okay, Job, these are my words. Sit down, listen. I'm going to ask you some questions. I will inquire of you. Where were you? And everything he asked Job is basically pointing to the fact that God is infinite in power, in wisdom, in knowledge, in goodness, in justice, as seen everywhere in creation, the inanimate and the animate, in everything. And Job, who are you? When were you born? How long have you been around? What do you know? 
And the answer is nothing. And because of what Elihu said, Job responds to God's statements in the right way. And this is how he says in Job 42, verses 5 and 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He repented. He didn't repent because God had brought all this on him, but because of his sin. That's not why he repented. He repented because he did not humble himself before the Lord in his trial. Because he set himself up against God. He contended with God. And so he repented. And so I say to you, whatever trial you have, and I always like to say the little trials are practiced for the big trials. You know, we've had big trials. I had a big trial. My wife went through a year and a half of stage four cancer treatment and died. And went to be with the Lord. And we say that might be a big trial. But you know what? There are lots of little trials. You know, I remember uh, some years ago when I lived in California and I went to, uh, there's this place, I don't know if you've ever been to L.A., but in L.A. there are places where the, the 405, there's a place where the 405, the 5, and the 210 kind of all come together. And it's major traffic. You know, if you're going north, all the traffic comes to that spot because that's the only way out of the valley. And it's all this traffic coming to this one spot. And when you know it, it's right there, right in the middle of all that. And I had a flat tire. You say, why? You know, <laughs> why there? Right? <laughs> and it's, it's a little thing, but you know what? You, you, have a, you have a response. At that moment, you can say, you know, inwardly curse. You can be frustrated. You can, why now? Why this? I'm, I'm, I'm in a hurry. I have some place to go. Or you can say, truly, I receive this Lord as from you. Enable me to respond to it in a godly way. Teach me what you And you say, that's impossible. No, that's not impossible. That's how you're supposed to live. And that's how you should live. And I will tell you that if you live that way, when the big trial comes, you'll respond that way. You say, well, that's not possible. It is possible. That is how the Holy Spirit works. And if you will be like Christ, you must live that way. Whatever comes into your life, whatever it is, no matter how small, you need to trust the Lord. You need to justify the Lord. You need to seek the Lord. You need to find the Lord as your refuge. You need to submit to Him and humble yourself before Him because, listen, He is the Lord. And He's sovereign over all these things. And He brings these things into our lives for our good. So don't contend with God. Find Him as your refuge. Do not question His character. Confirm it in your heart, no matter what. Do not justify yourself, but humble yourself before the true and the living God. Because I will tell you, not only is He all-powerful, listen, He is infinitely good to those that trust Him. I will say you can never out, you can never outgive God. He is, He is just overwhelmingly good to those that walk with Him and humble themselves before And we're thankful. God bless Job. What an amazing statement. Job was changed uh, by the power of God through this amazing trial. And uh, that's what the Lord does to us from day to day. 
as we trust Him and call upon Him in all of life, in every circumstance. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the lessons of the book of Job. You are a good God. You are a gracious God. We acknowledge that You are almighty. We acknowledge that You are all-knowing. We acknowledge, Lord, that You are infinitely above us. But Lord, we thank You that You also condescend to us. You are also imminent. That You love us and You care about us. You shepherd us uh, individually, day by day. You lead us in the paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. What an amazing thought that we can say, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. What an amazing thought that we can say with David that I will dwell forever in the house of the Lord because of what Christ has done for me, because of our salvation in Him, all based on Your goodness and Your grace. Father, we pray truly that today You would enable us, whatever happens this day, Lord, whether we have good things or whether we have trials, Lord, these things are in Your hands. It is not for us to decide. It's not for us to say what I want or what I don't want. It is not for me to say, well, I would really like this, but I wouldn't like that. It's not, it's not for us to say that, Lord. It's, not, it's for us to yield to your sovereignty and to seek you, to trust you and everything. We pray you would enable us truly to do that. And I pray, Father, that, if, again, if there's anybody here today who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, is not trusted in Christ alone for, their, for the forgiveness of their sins, submitted to him as Lord. I pray that today they would call upon you and seek your face by you. Thanks for listening to the Pulpit Ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.